This is Resonance 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How are you? <laughs> it is I, Nicholas of Hennigan, coming at you once more with a slice of literary London. And uh, we are right in the middle of literary London uh, this this time. Uh, because uh, during September, and as has happened every September for the last 13 years... West London becomes the scene of the Chiswick Book Festival. Now, you may have heard the first half. Um, we played that last time. And if not, just shuffle back, you know, have a little shuffle. Uh, or check it out on bohemianbritain.com, which is our new, new blog. <laughs> Bit of a wild space, but I'll talk about that another time, perhaps. But we now go back to the 14th Chiswick Book Festival. It's an organisation uh, which is great. It's all volunteers. They raise money for charities, local charities. Um, and they have every a, a local writer's party where you get a chance to come up on stage, talk about your book for two minutes. And Joe Jeffries, uh, the rather brilliant compare, has a horn that she blows if you go over your two minutes. I'll let her explain, but I should point out the second half of this event started <gasps> with a controversy. Ooh. My second point of housekeeping is actually to start the second half with an apology, because in my desperation to get to the bar uh, at the interval, I forgot one of our speakers. <laughs> Arsh, Arsh. Anyway, uh, so an apology to our speaker, and she will now be the first up to um, quell the nerves. So, ladies and gents, please give her an especially warm welcome to the stage to S.R. Garay talking about her new crime novel, Death in Lights. Casey Clement and her team of misfit detectives, Gage Ryan Tuliri, Sniper Tyler, Technique Candy, solve the hardest murders. They're held together by shared secrets, closer than family. Jamie Carvel, darling of the cultural elite of New York for his searingly candid photographs of street life, needs new inspiration, and he's found it in Casey and her team. Death in Lights is the fifth book in the series. Be sure your sins will find you out. Isabella Farker was found murdered before she could star as Titania in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. But which deadly sin caused her death? As Casey and her team uncover ambition, envy, lust, at every turn, the multiplicity of motives leaves them swimming in a sea of suspects. Casey's only ambition is to catch her killer. But Carvel is opening the blockbuster exhibition starring her and her team that will cement his ambition to be the most famous reality photographer forever, but give Casey's envious co-workers a chance to bring her down. Ambition, envy, lust, and murder. Casey will ensure the killer's sins will find them out. If you like your detective stories with snappy dialogue, enthralling backstories, some sardonic humour and a little splosh of romance, you will enjoy the Casey books. They're available tonight and on Amazon. <laughs>
first author of the second half, is going to be welcome to the stage, talking about her book, How to Be a Happy Woman in Midlife, Anita Hamilton. Happiness matters. It matters because happy people have better outcomes in life. But women in midlife are not always as happy as they could or should be. We live in a society that's optimised for the young, and that can mean that we feel outdated, irrelevant, and actually even invisible. We also face challenges quite unlike those of our parents or our mothers and grandmothers. We're managing teenage and adult children at the same time as ageing and infirm parents. Society really has ignored women in midlife. We're, un we're forgotten and we're certainly under-researched. So I decided to write a book about it. To look at the issues, to understand the, what's going on and to suggest how to live a better and happier life. Or at least a more contented life. It's a call to action. I studied happiness as part of a master's degree in psychology at the London School of Economics. And I've used that knowledge, that understanding, alongside peer-reviewed research and the evidence from experts in a range of fields to really show what's going on and then to suggest how you can make changes. I look at purpose a lot of women in midlife don't have purpose. I look at sex, that's a whole interesting issue. We should talk about <laughs> Family, children, marriage, and of course the health issues that affect us in midlife, including the massive decline in hormones that can lead to menopause, and of course the physical and psychological changes. I firmly believe that small changes in behavior are more effective than thinking yourself happy. Actually, I think that was a perfect place to stop. <laughs> now, next up, talking about her new children's book, Coco the Cats, we have Vanessa Nietzsche. between an aggressive tomcat terrorizing the neighborhood and a lonely, anxious woman <laughs> at the height of lockdown, self-isolating at home. Love it, sir. At first sight, it is not because he is a menace. He is a bird slayer. He leaves dead bodies of pigeons all over the garden and she has to clear it up and um, yes and um, she doesn't know how to approach him but then one day Coco the cat feels vulnerable and he enters her, her flat and suddenly they 
approach each other, they get closer, they become friends, and over time, he becomes her bubble. <laughs> Reviewers have called the book a delight to read. It gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling. And uh, let's face it, we can all do with that. <laughs> Imagine, January 1915, thousands of promising young men lie dead in Flanders fields. The nation is anxious and fearful, and so is a Chiswick family, the Clarks. They live at 44 Rustall Avenue, James Clark, his wife Elizabeth, and their six children. But now, all three of their sons have gone off to fight for their country. The youngest, Cosmo, is an art student. He's 17. He joins the Middlesex Regiment, becomes a junior officer, and within a year, he's in France. He goes over the top at the Somme. He's wounded. He loses his nerve. He gets trench fever, and he's sent home to recuperate. By 1917, he's back at the front. But will his nerve hold? To find out, we just got to buy this book. <laughs> told entirely in letters. Letters from the front. Naturally, Cosmo wrote home lively, honest, sometimes alarming letters to his mother and his father and his sisters, Lillian, Ruth and Ellen, and his serving brothers, Percy and Colville. And they all wrote back to Cosmo. Warm, supportive, home front letters about Zeppelin raids in Chiswick and food shortages. Miraculously, all these letters have survived. Editing such rich material has been a terrific privilege, and so is working with Cosmo's granddaughter, Annabelle, who's designed the book beautifully. Um, it's a pleasure working with Bernard, who was a BBC TV producer, so um, very experienced guy. Um, and thank you to my sister who's come all the way from Sheffield tonight, who knew Cosmo um, when she was a child. So she's got loads of extra juicy stories about Cosmo. Um, what else? Um, we hope it's it's more than just a memoir. It's a play. Um, and all true. 
Remembrance Day. Did everyone hear that? Yes. They're putting on the play at St Michael's on Remembrance Day. Do go. Okay, uh, now telling us how to work, we have, talking about his new book, Unworking, The Reinvention of the Modern Office, we have Jeremy Myerson. Probably not the best written book this evening. Um, um, it lacks suspense, it lacks drama. Um, there are no violent, unexplained deaths. Um, and there's even less sex. Um, but I can guarantee that it is probably the most topical title this evening because it deals with the future of work. Um, it's all about providing the context for what has become the biggest shift in how we work for a generation. It tells the story of the modern office from the early 1920s to the early 2020s. It's a hundred year history and the central event is the great pandemic of 2020, which we all know closed the office, confined us to home, and accelerated remote and hybrid working. The front cover of the book has a graphic. It shows a skyline of office towers passing through a shredder and emerging as software code. And this is a fitting metaphor for what the office is becoming, uh, a digital thing in the 20th century, bytes instead of bricks. What does unworking mean? It's not about not working. It's, uh, we use the term to describe unravelling how we work, unbundling the assumptions that are baked into going to the office, and unlearning, unlearning the habits that have traditionally defined our behaviour at work. So it's a big theme, one that explores how workspaces, work lives, organisations in even uh, how our cities are set to adapt. So whatever stage of life and work you're at, citizens of Chiswick, it's time. We have, uh, talking about his book, Ancestors, Adventures in a Foreign Country, we have Graham Holderness. What's my identity? Surely it's what I make of myself. Identity is fluid, changeable. I was brought up on a council estate in Leeds, among people who used to dream of living in Middle Road. But I left my family, my class, my place. I came south to university. I reinvented myself as a typical modern metropolitan intellectual, a citizen of the world, far more at home in other places and with other peoples. 
And my name is Old Norse. It means the keeper of the promontory. And my son got me interested in genealogy, and I learned that my ancestry can be traced back to the 16th century, to people called Holderness, who owned land a few miles from Spurn Head, which is the very tip of the Holderness Peninsula on the east coast of Yorkshire. So they were literally the holders of the Ness. A DNA test showed to me to be 100% British with a strong trace of what is now Denmark. Now this is nothing unusual. If your people have been around on these islands for millennia, then you will have that kind of genetic makeup. What it means for me is that somewhere in my body lie traces of those men and women who shared my name, men who, like my own father, worked with their hands, tilling the soil, husbanding sheep, shearing and cropping and tanning, making their world. And somewhere within me, there's a biological bond that along with the name connects me to a place, to a windswept promontory of broken cliffs and shifting sandbanks out there on that wild eastern coast facing across the sea towards an ancestral Scandinavian home. And with that bond, I inherit a debt to those men who came to this country as migrants, fleeing from persecution, from warfare, or famine. <laughs> used for drying hops for making beer. That you don't, didn't know this, but the Chiswick Book Festival is organized to occur exactly the time that they are picked and, and dry. So at this very moment around the country, coming out of the, cow, the cowls at the top of those kilns is the most wonderful, seductive, autumnal, Keatsian smell, mellow fruitfulness of the hop and recommend it to you. Uh, this is the first published account of the 400-year history of these buildings. The first version of my work was done over 60 years ago as a schoolboy in Kent studying, the, studying this for a university scholarship which paid for my entire university education. So I claim a prize for the longest duration between the first writing <laughs> and, and, and publication. Before, before I die, it's come out. <laughs> uh, the world has changed since now, helped greatly by uh, my friend Jane Davis, Jane uh, Juritz, who's here tonight. This is actually a beautifully presented book with over 250 modern and old photographs, diagrams, maps, and my own youthful paintings and 
and uh, illustration drawing. There's even a map by permission of Her Majesty the Queen in it. Uh, it's published by University Press, uh, Liverpool, so it's not cheap. <laughs> but, but, two points. One, uh, it's no more than the cost of a good dinner in Chiswick. <laughs> and, and the effect will last much longer. <laughs> considerably less than the cost of a good dinner in Chiswick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, it's mayhem. Now, uh, next up, talking about their book, Making Murals, Murals, or even Murals, sorry, uh, we have Mary West and Clara Wilkinson. publishers to write a book about how to paint murals. Making murals is a practical guide for anyone wanting to paint a mural. We share everything you need to know, from paints and brushes to scaling up a design, as well as instructions for different painting styles. We've included step-by-step -step tutorials outlining ten of our favourite murals, from bold abstracts to painterly botanicals. We wanted the book to be accessible to everybody, so we've included a range of styles from the more complex to simple designs. The book is full of beautiful photography and actually apart from anything else, it's really lovely to browse through. I'm going to hand over to Clara, who will tell you a little more about our story and collaboration. Um, so Mary and I formed Living Wall Murals in 2017. Um, like all good collaborations, ours came about in the pub and we hit it off immediately. Um, we're both fine artists. Mary studied at Slade and I was at St Martin's. Little did we know, this is where our, our fine art training would, would land us. Um, we share a similar aesthetic and a collaboration with Mary feels very natural. So when we paint our murals, it almost feels like we are, we're like one person. People ask us that and that's the simplest way to describe it. Um, so anyway, through word of mouth, our business grew. Um, we now specialise in finely painted wall art for commercial and domestic spaces. Um, our most recent commissions have been for housing estates around London, which have been really exciting. So yeah, we're really excited to share our book with you all tonight. And um, all of our knowledge has gone into this. And yeah, it's all in one book. And we hope that you all enjoy it and play it. Next up, talking about her new book, Coaching Women, Changing the System, Not the Person, we have Geraldine Gallagher. So the book's called um, Coaching Women, Changing the Person, Not the oh, System. Sorry. 
Wrong way round. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you were right actually. <laughs> <laughs> Changing system, not the person. Time to. So um, I'm a leadership coach, and um, I've been coaching now for 28 years. And I'm on my tiptoes here because this is too high, which is quite a good metaphor for my book, actually. Um, thank you. And I've been coaching for 28 years, and I've mainly coached men. And that's because most of the leaders are men. And uh, that's still the case today, despite the fact that we've got Liz Trust. But um, after all, she is an anomaly. <laughs> So, in terms, of, um, in terms of the book itself, it's called Coaching Women, but it's not aimed just at coaches and just at women. Actually, it's got universal appeal. All of you would enjoy it, I believe. Um, the first half of the book is actually about the women I've coached and some of the hidden barriers that they've experienced in becoming leaders in organisations and how I've coached them to help them become those leaders. But the second half of the book actually looks at the system in which we are living, in which we still equate leadership with being a man, and we still equate being a woman with being a caregiver. And of course, we all know from the people around us that that, I think we all know, that that is no longer a paradigm that still exists, it's too binary. So what I look to when it comes to the second half of the book and what I'm looking to do is how to change that system. One of the things I'm looking at is I'm looking at leadership and how we see leadership. And the way we see leadership at the moment is we're still too caught up with a hero leadership mentality. And what I'm promoting is the idea that what we need to do is to look at leadership as being more inclusive, which requires skills like collaboration, like empathy, like affiliation. And that leads me to pose the question in the book, do women make better leaders? Now, I've only got two minutes, so I can't answer that question here. Oh, so you have to buy the book. of yours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our penultimate speaker of the evening is talking about his new thriller, The End of the Road. We have Martin Fenning. Hi. Uh, life's a bit serious, so I'm afraid what you're getting from me is something which is 400 pages of escapism. Uh, so I hope you will uh, use this opportunity to do that. So this is basically a, a geopolitical uh, mystery adventure novel. Uh, and what it features is the positive and negative forces clashing in one person's mind. And uh, they're someone who's achieving a whole lot of professional success, but they've just had a terminal diagnosis. Now the trouble is, because this guy's a scientist, he's very rational and he can't deal with anything which is not uh, rational or organised. He's a bit of a control freak. 
So the whole point is, he realizes that he wants to control the end of his life and to work out what the implications of that are going to be both for him, his friends and his family. Anyway, all I really wanted to say to you is, this is a pacey book, it's an entertaining book, um, it's fairly superficial, I guess, compared to some of the other things we've heard of tonight. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it's certainly worth a read. So I hope you're fantastic. <laughs> what I wanted to say to get to two <laughs> 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 And there we must leave the Chiswick Book Festival, the 14th Chiswick Book Festival, dedicated to the memory of Her Majesty the Queen. And that was recorded live from the George IV pub in Chiswick. And that's it from me. I'll see you next time. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM.